in here. You've been coming to Yogaville for some time now, right? Third year. Third year. How does it feel to be here? I love it. I really, yeah. it's a functioning ashram. It's the real thing. Mm. How about the food? Uh, also the real thing. I love you. Grow some of your own food. Yeah. What could be better than that? Nice. It's beautiful. It's fresh. A woman yesterday told me, I saw an ant on my food. So I said, well, can't eat much. And she said, no, no, show us how fresh it is. <laughs> That's a good point. That's good. Do you do many of these programs? Or is it just a well, few a year? I try to do them sparingly, but I end up, people ask me, I end up doing them about once, twice a month, even more. In the summer, I take off. But wow. and actually, this summer, I'm not even taking off. I, I want to spread them out so I don't get, uh, it doesn't vitiate my medical practice. But I, I'm doing them now at least once a month. October, I think I have three or four. And the name of this program? This one, yeah. I do different things. Okay. This one is called Dr. Fishman's Method in Osteoporosis. Mm. Osteoporosis, um, we call it also 12 poses versus osteoporosis. Mm. Uh, 12 poses. Mm -hmm. So just in, in, in 12 poses, are they, would you say they're all somewhat equal or are no, there a few that are like you, that I, really promote for osteoporosis? I'm, I'm just learning. I mean, I did a study. I. I uh, did a pilot study because my friends said, you're going to teach yo uh, yoga to people with osteoporosis, you're going to break their bones. Mm -hmm. And so I did a pilot study in my office and I invited many people to come to my office after work, 5.30 to 6.30, once a week for two years. I got a DEXA scan, a bone mineral density test before they started. And then two years later, it was just a pilot study. And uh, uh, it, it didn't break any bones. Nobody got hurt at all. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, at the end of two years, it obviously worked. And my son was walking by me at my desk and he said, what are you, you going to publish that, Dad? And I said, no, it's not statistically significant. He said, well, give me the stuff, okay? So I emailed him the uh, statistics. He came down, not five minutes later, he said, it's significant. So I published it in the International Association of Yoga Therapists. And uh, then I got fire in my belly. Then I got excited about mm -hmm. it. So I made a thousand copies of a DVD of essentially those poses. I just gave them away to people who had interest and we're willing to get some blood tests to rule out metabolic um, uh, um, congenital or nutritional causes of osteoporosis and uh, a scan to figure out um, what, what was going on in their bones just to be sure nothing was abnormal and genetic and then I just gave it to them and they would look at it and do the yoga and they did it uh, I, I, Actually, only 741 people ended up using the disc, and of them, only about 250 were reliable enough. I took the people that did it at least every other day. I said four times a week, if you do it that often, I'm going to use your data. And 83% of them got stronger bones than they had before. Hmm. And these were people with osteoporosis, some with osteopenia, and some normal ones that just didn't want to get those diseases. Hmm. And so... Uh, I, now I teach it, I, and Ellen Saltonstall and I wrote a book about it in the middle of the study. The study wasn't over yet when we wrote the book, and um, I, that I teach quite a bit. Hmm. So many things I want to ask you. One is the word yoga, even to you. Well, I guess two parts. One, I would love to hear about your introduction into yoga, and then currently, how do you feel about that word, yoga? Yeah. What does it mean to you? I love the word. I mean, it has very pleasant associations for me. But I got into yoga when I was about nine years old. 
we had a little, one of those tiny little TVs, and I saw, uh, I think it's a Richard Kipling story, not um, Ab of the Jungle or something. And there was a little boy sitting on the neck of an elephant, pruning trees and giving the elephant the leaves. And he was very limber, and he did a little yoga. And I said, that's for me. I like that. And I, I mean, I was a normal, uh, reasonably normal kid. Uh, baseball, basketball, football, mm -hmm. hockey, ba uh, tennis, <laughs> swim, you name it, I played. Uh, I wasn't terribly good, but I was on the teams, you know. Uh, but yoga was what I loved. And then I uh, got a little older, and uh, th th there, would be a few, there would be a woman in the story who uh, introduced me to a higher level of yoga. Mm -hmm. And then I went to India. That's not why I went to India. I went to India. Really, I, I just graduated. I was at Oxford in England, and I did a Foundations of Mathematics. And I wandered into Basil Blackwell, the bookstore book on the broad, famous bookstore. And there I saw a book by a guy named Patanjali. Mm -hmm. And it turns out he was a grammarian, uh, first grammarian, they say. He wrote the first book on yoga. What is a grammarian? Someone who knows what grammar is. Oh, okay. Grammar, you know, subjects and predicates, nouns and verbs, yeah, yeah. so on. And uh, he was also a, a physician. And I liked that a lot. And I, mm. I was studying the foundations of mathematics, and it seemed to me that the closest thing to math was grammar. You know, only people that use language use math, only linguistic beings. And uh, there are rules, a well-formed sentence, just like a well-formed equation. And, you know, there are symbols, and then there are operators, and all kinds of things that there are in language. Mm. And so it seemed like a perfect way to learn. So I went to India really to learn Sanskrit, to learn Sanskrit grammar. Figuring that would be the foundations of mathematics. But I was there about, I'd say about three weeks when I realized the average three-year-old brought up in India knew more was able to know more Sanskrit than I would ever know. Mm. I realized I would be contesting, I'd be talking to experts who were way beyond me. So I just decided to look for liberated people. And I went around that way. And I met a lot of them. Some tried to fool me. Some were spending just as much effort to fool themselves. And some were really liberated. And uh, it was a drug addict who handed me Mr. Iyengar's book, On the Streets of Bombay. I took one look at the book and I said, this is the best yoga I ever saw. And I was enchanted by its classical features and my girlfriend at the time said, hey, you know, he's only a couple of hundred miles away. So we got on a train a week later or so and went to see him. I, oh, in the meantime, I did, I mean, there's a year there where I just did every pose in his book I could do, which wasn't mm -hmm. that many, but I did what I could. And then a year later, she said that about, he's only a few hundred miles away, and we went to see him. And it was a wonderful electric meeting. He said, why do you want to learn my yoga? I said, because I want to heal. He challenged me and said, you want to heal? He said, yes. He said, that's my great thing. Come on in. <laughs> so, and I stayed another year with him. I uh, rented a room in a hotel a couple of blocks away and I just stayed. Mm. And he was very generous and as intelligent as he was generous and as, uh, as firm as he was knowledgeable. He knew a great deal. As far as I can tell, he was an autodidact. He just taught himself. So, and then I came back to the U.S. really to be a doctor and also to find out how yoga worked. How does it work? And I, I think to some extent I've learned. Why did you want to be a doctor? I wanted to be a doctor since I was a kid. I always wanted to be a doctor. 
Um, I just wanted to. But also, uh, when you see the suffering that there is in India, there's only one thing that makes sense, and that's to be a doctor. Mm. You know, it's just, uh, it's, it's beyond, have you ever been to India? I have not. Well, you go and you'll see. I mean, there's, there, it's changed now. This was like decades ago. But it's, um, it's still true that it's such a verdant and rich country that people can survive at a very low level uh, of support and they get sick. Do you ever think about how, like, the, the way that our system is kind of set up where, you know, there's a s- small percentage of the population that are doctors and obviously people can't know, you know, the highest level of things, but, you know, I even was thinking the other night when, you know, the power goes out, you know, or there's natural disasters. And, and even yesterday there were there were some first, first responders that had to come here and I, and I think about the skills that even they know. Mm-hmm. And you know, sometimes it's a while before before someone can get there, and so it it, would, it seems that it would make sense to me. Like if I, when I was a student in school, even just like the basic like kind of first responder types of things, sometimes I feel so ignorant with my knowledge of the body system. And if there's an emergency, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's true that you know everybody learns to read and write. Everybody gets toilet trained. Why couldn't everybody get some basic level of first aid? Yeah. I think they used to teach things like this in the schools. I'm not sure they still do. So that everyone, you can't all, not everyone should be a doctor. Not everyone is cut out for it. And we have other things that have to get done too. (laughs) But uh, there's no reason that first aid can't be done by Mm. almost everybody. I think it would be a good idea. And yoga gives a kind of emotional first aid in almost every Mm. case. And uh, a good practice of yoga makes you ripe, makes you able to benefit from very modest modifications of your life. Hmm. You know, you, you're more adaptable, Sean. That's a way to put it. So you mentioned how yoga works. Figuring yeah. out, you wanted to know how yoga works. Yeah. You got it? Yeah. I know some. It's, uh, there's more to yoga than I'm ever going to know. But there's, uh, I've learned some things, yeah. I've learned, for example... Uh, how you can, how yoga works with osteoporosis. Yoga stimulates the bone cells because it puts greater pressure on them than anything else because it pits one set of muscles against another. And all the muscles are stronger than gravity. You don't believe that. I can see it in your eyes. What? It's true. And I'm going to prove it to you that yoga, that our muscles are stronger than gravity. You ready? Yeah. Of course our muscles are stronger. That's the whole point of having a muscle, so we can move them around on this relatively small planet. And one set, you know, the quadriceps opposing the hamstrings, these are powerful muscles. 10, 20 times the strength of gravity. And so when you multiply them together, you're stimulating those cells that respond to pressure greatly. And there's nothing that does that like yoga. Not weightlifting, not golf, nothing. You know, what I get out of just listening to you share that is this like kind of fascination for what we are and life just on a very basic level, right? Yeah, and true. maybe if if we have that, the yoga just kind of comes naturally, right? If you're if you're just fascinated by like what this is that I am that I can move about just the body physically, then normally okay, now I want to make it feel good and I want to stretch it and move it in a different direction. Yeah, I think about that. How did yoga start in the first place? Yeah. 
And I think, you know, over the centuries, there have been so many different aspects of yoga. There have been yoga thieves. There have been yoga, pure yogis who do nothing, nothing, nothing all day. What's a yoga thief? They rob people. I mean, if you read the books, there are the histories of yogis who rob. Yogis who are uh, predatory towards children. And they call themselves yogis. Huh. I mean, the yoga has a checkered history. Hmm. So I say that not to besmirch yoga, but rather to say, humbly, I come from a certain tradition and I only see what I've been shown. Mm. And what I see seems to me that where yoga comes from is a sense, a, a craving for, the el for elegance, for skill, for mastery that, come, that goes way back in time. And when I look at the ancient pictures of yoga poses, they're so graceful. They're so uh, masterful, like uh, powerful in the sense of beauty. Mm -hmm. not in the sense of physical force. Mm -hmm. that, I th that it reinforces my opinion, which is that that's how yoga started. People wanting to be more elegant than, you know, lunging around like the apes who are our forebears. Mm -hmm. That's what I think. And the loftiness that comes with yoga, I don't know if that was what they were after or that's what they found. Mm -hmm. But yoga makes you elevated. Yoga brings you a sense, some... Somebody said it like this, that it unifies the body and the mind and that brings you to the spirit. Mm. And that, that says it pretty well. Mm. That puts you off a little bit, huh? The, the pederists, the, I mean, there have been yogis, at least they're described. I'm, I'm not a historian. I don't know any original documentation, but I've read yeah. about that. Well, you know, it's this attitude, I think, or I don't, it doesn't put me off, honestly. Oh, good. Sure, because because, be, because yeah. um, I, a, a basic attitude that I try to have is that you know, every person, there's something that you want to take from them and something else that maybe you say, okay, you well, leave. That, that, that's fine. So why should yoga be any, yeah. any different than that, the history right. of it? You in, know? in my office in Columbia, there's a sign that says, everyone brings joy to this office. Someone they come, someone they go. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's great. Uh, but But now it seems like in all the all the work that you're doing and uh you know i wrote out the list from your bio all the things that yoga can help with insomnia obesity mm -hmm. on and on and on and on mm -hmm. different things um and so it seems like now maybe the motivation needs to be health well, the, yeah, the, the, yeah. And, and, and just my, the second the second thing i'd like to say with the elegance part and i don't know if this is related to the history of it but i think in, in yoga in, in a way like the the glorification of the poses in the physical body on the ego level, right, prevents people from taking steps towards it because they say, "Oh, that's that's not for me. I don't look like the way they do in the, the well, magazines." Well, let me and, let know. me say something a little critical of our beloved yoga, which I love, like a spouse. You know, I really love. But I have some criticism of my spouse too. <laughs> and uh, my one criticism is that it is a little self-centric. Hmm. It's you that becomes lofty. And to me, all my life, my, my folks used to say to me, do something of redeeming social value in your life. I don't care what you do, but be a good one. And have some redeeming social value. And yoga has it if you teach. It has it if you're a therapist. But to just be a yogi in the forest and become a, an enlightened being in itself is good. 
you know, as Gandhi says, become the change you want to see, mm. and you're becoming it. But can't you share it? It seems to me there's an element of sharing intrinsic in being a human being. We're social animals. That's what Swami Satchidananda says. Why is it that I'm practicing this yoga in order so that I can serve? Yes. And that's always the point. I mean, I think if we all go deep enough to a certain level and you really get in touch with your motivations, it's, okay, what am I going to do with this time? <laughs> yeah. it, it gets old a little bit and lonely to just keep on focusing on, you know, making yourself better for selfish reasons. Yeah. You no, know, you make yourself better, but it's in order so that you can serve because you literally cannot serve if you're not taking care of yourself and yeah. someone else needs to take care of you. That's the way I look at it. And the one, the one possibly possible saving grace is that maybe the ancient yogis, I mean, if you read Patanjali, there's no talk about service. I, I can't think of a line in there that is, but in, in India and in most of the world, I think, the, the other people are sensitive enough to see you walking to the market to buy your yogurt and your almonds, and they say, that's a higher, that's a higher level evolution of being, and they will seek you out, mm -hmm. and they will ask your advice on a number of things, even if you don't do anything, unbidden, they will do that, and so you will be serving anyway, and maybe that's a tacit understanding. I can I can say that, but otherwise, I'm you know we're on the same team here. It's it, to be purely egotistical is um, even no matter how enlightened you get, we can do better than that. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. so I agree with that. Now I have used yoga. I mean, what I was telling you about with the bones is understanding how yoga works. But what I've really done with most of my time is to figure out what you can use yoga to do. In other words, you might have to change the pose a little, but it's not understanding. Uh, I guess it is in a sense how it works, but it's using the pose to overcome rotator cuff, to reverse scoliosis, to put people to sleep, to end restless leg syndrome and back pain. I'd say I've spent more time on back pain probably than anything else. Mm. But And there's a mistake there. Yeah, what is it about the back? What's yeah. going on with the back? Well, what's going on about the back stems originally, I think, from medical school, where I'm not, I'm not exaggerating this, you spend one month learning about the liver. The A cells and the C cells and the, all the lacteals in the intestine, the pore pattern, all this stuff. You spend less than one afternoon on the back. Now, if you become an orthopedic surgeon, you learn more. Uh, sports medicine, you learn more in your sort of postgraduate training. So the, the, the ye old normal internist is confronted with someone with back pain. How common is it? 80% of Americans have it at one point or another in their lives. Confronted, if they take it seriously, they get hives on the back of their neck because they don't know what they don't know what the back looks like or how it acts. So they roll a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory across the table and maybe a muscle relaxant. Mm. And that's it. If they get really terribly sick, people don't get better with that, and some do get better with that. Then they send them off to somebody else. And the yogis. I'm sorry to say, we yogis have not done much better. Mm. Most of the better studies, um, Robert's uh, Saper studies, um, um, can't think of what first name, Sherman's studies, they say, let's look at chronic back pain. Let's look at undiagnosed back pain. That's not the way to go. That's not sensible. That's like saying, let's look at the butterflies we can't identify. Mm. What are you going to learn from them? Mm. Look at the butterflies that you, you know the species and the genres. The generate they come from. What order are they? What are like them? How did they evolve? And then you will learn something about butterflies. And 
they're doing it for a good reason. Yoga therapy is in its infancy. But if you distinguish between the seven different basic kinds of back pain, then you can say which pose works for which one. Otherwise, you come up with these very general conclusions that show that yoga works all right, but they're not good enough. It doesn't work well enough. And there's a reason, because the symptom, back pain, is just that. It's only a symptom. Let me make an analogy. Suppose you have a rash over here. That's a symptom. The rash is a symptom. It's not a disease. The cause may be lupus, maybe Lyme disease, maybe uh, poison ivy, uh, herpes, you know, shingles. So let's suppose if it's, if it's uh, poison ivy, steroids are going to work beautifully, make it go away. But if it's uh, herpes, steroids are going to make it worse. Mm. So the same treatment doesn't apply to the same symptom. You have to know exactly what the cause is of the symptom before you can start treating it. Everybody has back pain. Lots of them have sciatica that goes down to like a little numbness in the foot, weakness maybe, walking on their heels. That could be a herniated disc, in which case extension is very good. Warrior one, mm. um, shalabasa, mm. camel. Or it could be spinal stenosis, in which case those very poses will make it worse. Same symptoms, different, different diagnosis. On the other hand, if it is spinal stenosis, bending forward will be good. We'll stretch out the ligaments in there that are occluding the spinal canal. But if you have a herniated disc, same symptoms, bending forward can actually extend the disc further and make you sicker. So you've got to know the cause before you can treat. And that, in my opinion, most of the people using yoga to treat back pain, or at least some of them, don't do that. And that's, that's what I've brought to it. Is that I teach yogis and yoga therapists how to distinguish, how to identify which one it is, hmm. and then treat it, treat it, benefit the people that have it accordingly. <clears throat> Listening to you speak, it, it, it seems like almost every doctor should also be familiar with yoga and offering poses. Well, I think the same yeah. thing. I need an app an app called Yoga Injury Prevention, YIP, which I also nicknamed, I could, I've thought of another name that I like better, Yoga Therapedia. I don't know what you think, but anyway, in it, anybody, doctors, nurses, uh, civilians, you know, lay people can go there and they can put in a condition and learn which yoga poses wow. are good for it and which are bad for it. And they can also, if they put in a condition, they can learn uh, who should do it and who shouldn't. And also, you can put in a pose and find out what the pose is good for or what the, and who shouldn't do the pose. You said this site is up? It's up. What, it's could, called, we, could we put that in the show notes? Too? Yeah, put it in Yip. It's called Yip Yoga Injury Prevention dot guru, not dot com, dot G-U-R-U. And it's a very nice site and you get a free week if you go on and it's a dollar a week after that. I mean, we're not out to make a million dollars. It's... Uh, so and their blogs and and I have some videos on there too for people this is more for I mean I don't expect doctors yet to take it seriously but treatment like for insomnia a little video of me and a patient or a volunteer doing three minutes five minutes is all it takes for restless leg for uh, different kinds of back pain you know how do you feel about um, just the personal exploration of yoga um, meaning that you don't even know what you're going to do you don't have a plan 
but you set aside time to do yoga and you allow your body to speak to you and just move in the ways that feel good. You don't know it, but you have hit the mother load. I really believe in that. That's, I think that's, uh, as Mr. Iyengar said, the greatest adventure in a, in, in a man's life is to learn who he is. I mean, there's so many layers to the onion. And uh, somebody of Kripalu said it too, that to non-judgmentally observe yourself, to see all those things, which if you looked at them with any sense of, of judgment, you say, what a terrible thing. How, is that me? Yeah. And other things on the other side. For example, once when I was in India, there was a kid, which in those days they would call an untouchable, uh, very dark-skinned and fat and sassy, maybe 12 years old. I saw him standing up for himself in a chai shop in Bombay, and then I saw him down in, in Goa, where he was playing with another guy, and all of a sudden the guy in a conversational tone called out, help, help. It was monsoon time, and there was a fierce riptide there. I, I didn't know it till the following happened. The little boy suddenly was floating out to sea, and I was a very strong swimmer, I swam out almost in a, in a fool around jovial way and did the classical uh, Red Cross rescue, you know. But the current was much stronger. And we looked back a short time later and we were blocks from the beach. We were way out there. And the little boy got scared and started pushing me down. And I slapped him and I said, you have to listen to me here. And he stiffened up like a surfboard. And that gave me an idea. There's a thing called laminar flow, where if, if a current is flowing right near the shore, it's not flowing as strongly. So I figured, well, right near the top, it probably isn't flowing as strongly either. So he, the surfboard was right on the surface, and I swam as shallowly as I could. And I would hit his head above water, he was crying, but his head was up. I would push him forward and swim as fast as I could to catch up with him. And by the time I caught up with him, he was already coming back because of the, the force of the current. But we just kept, I kept doing it. I was scared to look at the shore. I didn't know what was happening. I didn't look. I just kept doing it and doing it. Mm. It must, it seemed, seemed like two hours. I don't know, a long time. Um, we got to the shore. He was very heavy. I was bring him to the shore. But I did, panting. And afterwards, it took me a week to realize that in that time, it never once occurred to me to leave him there. It just didn't dawn on me that I, you know, I got to get back to show myself. And that, that made me feel good about myself. I won't tell you all the bad ones. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, if I had to take a vote, I think the bad guys would probably win. There are all kinds of terrible things about us, too. But if you see it with the equanimity that you borrow or buy from yoga, uh, I think it's good. I think this this distance from the self and I guess the ego self you could even call it is really to me what yoga is about almost you begin to remember again and again to see it not be so invested in the self on so caring about what other people think but instead of guardianship over the self and therefore it becomes uh, different questions rise up, you start to say, you know, what is, what is best for Dr. Fishman, right? Or even in a situation that you describe there, doing something like that, you allow yourself to be positively reinforced 
in a decent way. Yeah. You know, it's like um, when I used to teach school children, I realized the, the power of positive reinforcement for them instead of focusing on the negative and what they're doing mm. and when they do the positive behavior. So there's a lot of power in that. And so we can do that with ourselves, not again from this ego level, but from just a level of wanting to grow and improve. And you can mm-hmm. say, oh, wow, you know, maybe a few years back, you weren't, you wouldn't have been in the place where you would have acted, mm-hmm. you know, with such clarity, maybe your yoga practice and other things. So all that work that you were doing, you know, led you to that moment of saving this, this boy's life. This boy, yeah. I think you're right. I mean, there was the, I used the carrot and the stick. I mean, I yeah. slapped him. So I told him, don't do that. What would I have done if he kept pushing my head down? I don't know. Luckily, he stopped. Uh, uh, but uh, the positive stuff was, let's get over that. <laughs> sure. I mean, there were um, cliffs on one side of the waves breaking on them. On the other side were coral, which is sharp as knives. So you get a narrow channel to go down, and that's where the water was coming out. So it was, uh, it was one of those situations. The, the ultimate value of, uh, well, Hans Goethe says, he says, genius is developed on its own. Character comes from your association with people. Mm. So, yeah, it's, it's exciting. It's the almighty power of yoga is to get to know yourself. Mm. I don't think potentially would disagree. If you were sitting over here, I think he'd agree with you. Nice. These emergency situations... I'm really interested in them because mm-hmm. there's there's something wonderful in a way, I would say, not about the situation in itself, but acting with such clarity where even the self goes away because there's someone that needs your help right there. Mm-hmm. And so my hypothesis a little bit or interest is can we live like that just more of the time? Like even when there isn't a, an emergency situation, can still with that kind of that clarity, that kind of yeah. go-getterness and not mm-hmm. the self-consciousness, just clean action, you know? I think yoga promotes it. You know, yoga washes clean so many uh, of, of the obstacles to seeing clearly. And I mean, to me, my favorite day is probably when I'm shooting a, a, a pictures for a book, where I just do yoga all day. Mm. You know, a busy life, children, doctor, all this stuff. I don't get a lot of chance to do that, but if you, if you sort of live your life in yoga, and then you do things, sort of short excursions out of yoga to do whatever you do, I think that, then great, much greater clarity would emerge, and people would be much kinder to each other. <laughs> mm. You know, you gotta you gotta let craziness develop. Let it fester for a while before it really takes you over. If you do the yoga in between, it kind of vitiates any of those mad tendencies. Yeah. And what about a little bit of yoga here and there? Better you know, than none. Yeah. Yeah, better than none. Yeah. But there are, you know, that's another thing I've learned. There are strong connections between uh, the sensory fibers in your bones and your uh, joints and especially in your muscles and the brain. But signals, it's not just that the brain sends signals into a muscle to contract. When a muscle stretches or contracts, signals are sent back to the brain to tell it what it's doing. And some of those signals, like in Paschimottanasana, uh, forward bend, Suptapadangustasana, are calming. And you can easily map out why they're so calming. 
others in pranayama from the vagus nerve that goes into the, uh, the chest wall and other places, just have a natural effect of, of calming you and making you more contemplative because crazy things are not going through your head. Yeah. Maybe the obstacle is really even first deciding that you want to feel better. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's like when I really think about what's going on, you know, and just the commonalities and the tendencies that you see, I don't know if there are so many people out there that even want to get out of the rut that they're in. So it's like clear, okay, yoga works. I can do this and it's going to make me feel better. But do, do I want it? It's, it seems almost like change, like accepting change and that you could actually feel well, yeah. better than you actually do right now. People do a yeah. lot not to change. That's true. You're absolutely right. I mean, people, they, they love those habits. I, I once went to see a dentist and he's, he was taking care of another person, but we were talking. He said, you've got a lot of stains on your teeth. And the person said, yeah, those are very, that's really good wine there. That's great coffee. Those are expensive stains. <laughs> <laughs> and indeed, there is great expense to the, to the habits, good or bad, that we've developed. I, I once... Uh, gave a talk up at Columbia, and a woman came up to me afterwards and said, my child has MHE, multiple hereditary exostomas. Can you help me? And I said, I don't know anything about this condition. I never heard of it in my life. She said, oh, there are only about 2,000 in the United States that have it. And her eyes were so pleading, I, I gave in. I said, I'll learn about it. I'll help you any way I can. Long story a little shorter, they had a meeting. And at that meeting, all the people that were in that neck of the woods that had the disease came. And in amongst them was a 16-year-old girl who said, would you come into the bedroom with me? And I said, sure. Went into the bedroom with her. She sat there and she said, are you going to cure MHE? And I said, no. I'm too old and I'm too ignorant. I don't know anything about it. She said, I hope you don't. She had had 16 surgeries already in her life because some of it means the bones grow in all kinds of weird places and they intersect nerves and the esophagus and all kinds of other things. I said, you hope I don't? She said, yes. I said, why? She said, because then I won't know who I am. So in other words, this illness, this disease, hereditary condition, mm. helped her define who she was. And if the disease weren't there, she wouldn't know who she was. Well, I think that applies to a lot of bad habits that we have, too. That help us tell us who we are. The danger of the unknown, right? Yeah, oh, also, that's the other side of it. Uh-oh, if I'm not this person, if I'm not this terrible person, who am I? Uh-oh. Yeah? <clears throat> Very scary. Seems that somehow just with, with kindness, you know, gen, genuine empathy, I guess. I don't know if that word works. Sure, or, or just keep on working to be the better example yourself and then just trust in that, perhaps. Uh, I don't know. Well, I think so. I mean, you're catching me at a very weird time in my life. My sister died a couple of days ago. Oh. And I feel such remorse that I wasn't kinder to her, that I wasn't more engaged with her. I was always engaged. We were never on the outs. You know, she was a good sister. I think I was a reasonable brother. But when the, the person goes, then you recognize all the things you could have done that you wish you could do now. And you can turn that to a general benefit for people to recognize 
that we are all destined to go. So if we aren't good to each other now, when? Definitely. Condolences Thank to you. you. Um, um, My big sister. Big sister. What was her name? <laughs> Roberta. Roberta. She uh, was a tireless worker for the poor, uh, the disabled, and the elderly, finding housing for them. She would go to Washington and get money and use that money to build uh, structures that people, disadvantaged people, could, could live in. Mm-hmm. And she was so tireless. <laughs> I'm not going to cry, I hope. But she worked. She ignored her own pain with terrible stage four cancer, that she worked almost until she was dead. Most people that have this form of cancer, it's found three or six months beforehand uh, because they're tired and they don't feel well and all this. But Roberta, she worked until a week before she passed away. And she went to the emergency room on a Saturday night because there was, she had so much pain she couldn't stand it. And they, they diagnosed it in the emergency room where you don't usually diagnose cancer, but they could because it was so obvious. She did not, in my opinion, have the best medical care or else she just didn't want to go see him. Sunday, they confirmed the diagnosis. Monday, they took two liters of fluid out of her abdomen. That was Monday during the afternoon. Monday night, she went to the theater. <laughs> I didn't think you were going to say Tuesday, that. Tuesday night, she was in a coma. Wednesday, she was, you know what she looked like? I'm telling you stuff that isn't really that much of Picasso, in his blue period, has this picture of the guitarist over like this with the guitar, impassioned. This passion of life transformed into recognition of death gave her a, a sense of passion, which she always had anyway. Um, that's what she looked like. And when uh, I spoke to her, she could hear me. Let me give me your hand, show you how hard. I said, if you can hear me, squeeze my hand. This is how hard she could squeeze. My kids called up and they talked to her. And it was the only word she spoke was to my daughter. She said, thank you. Mm. So she was as generous and curious as she was passionate. She just had a passion for Thank you for sharing about her. Yeah. Um, but it's sort of saying, yeah, give. What's your option? But also, I think, give to yourself so that you can give more. Right? Oh, yeah. Like, don't, don't miss that oh. piece necessarily. And, you know, what I thought, if, if it's okay for me to share about, you know, I, I often think about our relationship to time. And actually our relationship to time as being a central component to, 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 to good mental health, right? So when something happens and maybe we wish that we have, would have done something differently. So there's a choice to make there because it's already gone. The opportunity mm-hmm. is gone. Like there's no going back. It's a one-way right? street. It's a one-way street. So therefore we can kind of, um, you know, feel down about it and maybe be hard on ourselves. Or we can say, okay, I will learn a lesson there and I'll take it with me. That's the only thing that I can Mm do. Learning is the antidote of time. It's true. You see, I think we live in this big clock, the solar system, with a regular periodicity to it. You know, the earth has its seasons because it turns to. I I imagine there could be other parts of the universe 
where time, the regularity, the rep mm. repetitiveness, the circularity, so prevalent in Indian philosophy, isn't there. Mm. Maybe they live on comets. Uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe they're made of flame. I don't know. Uh, but for us here, time is, is a critical metric of how things get done and mm. don't get done. Right. And you get one chance usually. You can't go back. Mm. So... What I say, I said in this thing I'm teaching now, I say, think of the person or persons you've loved the most in your life. Treat yourself at least that well. Yeah. That seems to be the very kind of the core of, of it, is to, to really look at it like it's a duty. It's okay to feel that way, right? That's the start. That's the foundation. And then now we can go and explore how to actually do that. It's just... The wonderful African poem, this woman is mixing up a love potion. And I'm not, I don't know the whole poem, I couldn't give it to you anyway. But at one point she says, let him come to me, let him feel unease. She's mixing up this potion. Let him come to me without pride as I come to him. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's life well lived.